Amen. Well, we continue in our lessons concerning the sufficiency of Christ. I'm going to start by reading a couple of passages, Philippians chapter 4, verse 19, And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. And Hebrews 7, verse 25, Therefore he, that is Christ, is able to save to the uttermost. I'm going to pause and say that word translated uttermost means full-ended or all-complete. Is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he always lives to make intercession. Uh, for the sake of any who may not have been here last week, we were considering, uh, starting to consider the uttermost things of salvation. That is, God has a plan for us in having saved us. We will see later on that Paul wrote, I don't count myself to have apprehended. He had not fully laid hold of all those things for which Christ had laid hold of him. So there's more to salvation than just that instant of accepting Christ, receiving eternal life, and then that's it, you're eternally saved. He has a plan. And so there are uttermost, they're the furthest reaches, they're the completing parts of salvation, and Christ is sufficient for those. He is able to save us to the uttermost. Uh, we were considering something having to do with the completing of God's plan for us, for his people, and that is a better resurrection. Hebrews 11 and verse 35, women received their, speaking about Old Testament times, women received their dead raised to life again. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Now, what we saw last week in some detail is that anyone who has turned to the Lord Jesus Christ, trusted him for salvation, all who have been born again are guaranteed that resurrection to life. And so that's something that's assured. We're not talking about just knowing that one day we will be raised again should we go by way of the grave. There are no exceptions to that part of salvation. Part of what is guaranteed when you accept Christ. But from what we read there in Hebrews eleven thirty-five, and what we saw last week in 1 Corinthians 15, won't go into all that again, but it speaks of varying degrees of glory in the resurrection and order in the resurrection. Uh, it becomes clear that there is indeed a better resurrection to attain to. Uh, one that completes, one that fulfills God's intention having saved us. Paul spoke about these things also in Philippians chapter 3. Now, by, by the way, I'm going to suggest this is going to be on screen, Philippians 3, 7 through 14. But I suggest you turn to it in the Bible because it won't all be on screen the whole time, the lengthy passage, and you may want to look at verses as I go through. That's up to you. But Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 14. But what things were gained to me these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things loss 
for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. Now I'm going to pause there. That word excellence, it speaks of that which is higher. It speaks of that which is better. It speaks of that which is above or superior or surpassing. So Paul knew Christ. Every person who accepts Christ necessarily knows Jesus. But there is an excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Count them as something that is foul, refuse, something that is, throw it to the dogs, we don't want it. That's really the thought there. Why? That I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. Now, the only righteousness he did have was righteousness by faith in Christ. He's talking about a laying hold of this and apprehending of it. You know, we can still have a little self-righteous corner of our hearts and our thinking, but the only thing that we have that sets us in a place of righteousness is the person of Christ, his life, his presence in us. And we grow into that as we lay hold of that excellence of the knowledge of Christ. Um, Verse 10, that I may know him, well, I'm still on verse 9 up there, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering, you see, an increasing knowledge of Christ, being conformed to his death, if by any means, if, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead, not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended. But one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God. There's that better resurrection. The upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now, for time's sake, I'm going to move very quickly through this passage. And if I leave you with questions, uh, feel free to ask me, text me, email me, ask me in person. But uh, in verse, now again, these aren't all verses aren't all going to be on screen. But in verses seven and eight, the apostle Paul spoke of a commitment to Christ and to the things of God that was so complete he was willing to count everything of this earth as being lost for Christ's sake. I want you to think of things that are valuable to you in this life, things that are important to you, and that can include people. Are you willing? I mean, this is just, you know, a a point where we check ourselves and see whether we have apprehended. Would you be willing to let everything and everyone go for Christ's sake if that's how it has to be? It doesn't always have to be that way. We know that. But that's a part of the commitment to Christ. That's where the rubber meets the road. That's where we find out, am I really committed to Christ for the best that he offers? He, uh, he in fact, had lost all things. And he counted those things as loss. Why? 
Because he wanted to know everything he could possibly know about the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that kind of desire and that level of commitment is exceedingly rare. And I think you know that. And if we're honest with ourselves, you know, you've seen the saying, God ain't finished with me yet. Well, God ain't finished with me yet. And if we examine our hearts, we know that sometimes there are these little reservations. And, uh, well, it's a time when we come before the Lord and ask the Lord, who is sufficient to save us to that uttermost? We ask him to do that work in us. At the end of verse 8, he expressed more of why he was willing to lose all things and to count them as so worthless they're just fit for nothing and to be thrown to the dogs. He said, that I may gain Christ. Now, the old King James Version says that I may win Christ. Uh, The new King James is, in this particular case, is actually more literal, more accurate. That I may gain Christ. I think some of our youngest Sunday school kids downstairs... And certainly, I expect everybody up here understands that uh, when you get saved, you accept Christ. He enters into your life. We talk to kids about, you want to ask Jesus to come into your heart? That's a literal reality. And so, it, it becomes obvious that Paul is indicating the fact that he had an urgent desire to gain more of Christ. I think everybody here understands that when you get saved, you know, there's a lot of things you don't need to know in order to get saved. Uh, Ask a kid that's, you know, when I was five years old and accepted Christ as my Savior, could I have defined righteousness? Did I know the least thing about sanctification and redemption? Did I know really the depths of sin from which I had been saved? And the answer to all that is no. We learn as we go on. And Paul had this urgent, urgent, burning desire to gain more and more and more of Christ. You know, if you look at the rewards offered to God's people, every one of them has to do with gaining more of the Lord Jesus Christ. Just, just a couple of examples. In James 1.12, Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved... He will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Revelation 2.10, the latter part of that verse, be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. Well, what's that crown of life really all about? The words of Jesus in John uh, 14.6, the beginning of that verse, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the life. Colossians 3.4, when Christ, who is our life, appears, then you, will all, you also will appear with him in glory. So what is the crown of life? Christ is the life. The crown of life is a reward that is simply more of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, then in 2 Timothy 4 and verse 8, finally there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all. This is open to everyone. Not some exclusive deal that not everybody has an opportunity for. But to all who have loved his appearing. Well, what is this crown of righteousness? What in the world could it be about? First Corinthians 1 and verse 30. But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness 
and sanctification and redemption. Christ who became righteousness. What's the crown of righteousness? It's more a reward. More of the Lord Jesus Christ. This won't be on screen, but in 1 Peter 5, the apostle mentions the crown of glory. In Colossians chapter, uh, what is it, chapter 3? Colossians 1. Paul speaks of Christ in you, the hope of glory. Again, there is a hungering in the new creation, the new man, the new life in us for more of Christ. I think some of God's people don't identify that appetite and that desire. But there is a hungering in us. We don't want to live dissatisfied and discontent. But on the other hand, we can only be satisfied as we take in more and more of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, there's some things even in the natural, more is better. You know, I say it at Thanksgiving, you know, if you can see the pumpkin pie, you don't have enough whipped cream on it. Right? Give me more whipped cream. (laughs) So... Whatever it might be, even the natural, more is better, right? Sometimes less is better, but uh, not in spiritual things. And so always there is a hunger, there's a desiring, there's an availability. And Christ is sufficient. He's enough. He's able to bring us to those things. In, in verse 11, there in uh, that passage in Philippians, Paul came to the better resurrection spoken of in uh, Hebrews 11.35, if by any means I, might, I may attain to. Now, a resurrection life is guaranteed to every one of God's people. But here Paul, who was saved, knew he was saved, didn't have any question as to whether he was saved. He said, that I may attain to, that I may come to, that I may, might receive the resurrection from the dead. Now, some are already familiar with this passage, and if you are, this is a review for you. But the word translated resurrection in this verse is not used anywhere else in the Bible. And literally, it means an out-resurrection. Now, here's a resurrection, but then there's an out-resurrection from among that group. Um, It distinguishes it from the resurrection in general. Now, again, we saw last week through the scriptures that everyone who has accepted Christ is guaranteed a part in that first resurrection, that resurrection to life. And so Paul definitely, obviously, clearly has to be referring to something more, something a little different, something out of the ordinary in the matter of resurrection, something he makes it clear by his wording is something you have to desire consciously, something you need to believe for, something you need to commit to Christ deeply in order to receive And finally, in verse 14, he said, I press toward the goal for the prize. This this isn't something just guaranteed. This is a prize of the upward call. What's that? Resurrection. The upward call of God in Christ Jesus in the all-sufficient one who is able to save us to the furthest reaches, to the full perfecting and completing of God's desire and plan for us. So it's all about gaining more of Christ. More of him who is sufficient to satisfy. More of him who is sufficient to carry us to the full completing of God's plan. And that leads us to another aspect of God's highest and best for us, to which Christ is sufficient to save us. And that is the bride, the Lamb's wife. We'll see that passage, not in this lesson, but later on in Revelation 21.9. 
just some general comments on the Bible teaching. We'll come to some scriptures in a moment, but some comments on the Bible teaching regarding the bride. Uh, many, if not all of you, are aware to a greater or lesser degree of this teaching. It's good teaching. It's sound teaching. But I think it's important to sort of make it clear up front, which in my experience a lot of people did not do, to make it clear that this is just a picture. This matter of the bride and the marriage of the lamb, it is figurative. It's symbolic languages. So, and I've heard this, and it, it just kind of makes me want to grit my teeth. Well, I haven't heard it in a long time, but some people romanticize this thing so that it's, it just takes it beyond what makes sense, trying to make it into something literal that is fully comparable to human marriage. And uh, based on that error, now this is, you know, take this for what you will, but I, I've had a, a couple of young men say to me in years past that they found this kind of repellent. And I'll just leave that there. And if it was something literal, it would be like, ah, you know, it's not. It's a picture. Just a picture. You know, there, there are a lot of figurative things in the scripture that are intended to convey spiritual truths. So, well, let me, let me just give you a verse about marriage. This is Matthew twenty-two thirty. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels of God in heaven. That's found also in Mark twelve twenty-five and Luke 20, verse 35. Not going to be a literal marriage. There's something here God wants us to see, but don't romanticize it or try to transform it into something fully comparable to the natural order of things. You know, think of some of the other figurative pictures in the Bible. Jesus Christ is called the Lamb of God. Now, the Gordoneers have had some lambs. Are lambs in really brilliantly intelligent? I, I got a, a no there. Do they think things through? I'm, I'm not going to make Adrian shake his head no every time. But, you know, here they all are leaping all around the field and what have you and doing silly things. That's not what, you know, you don't take the whole thing and say, oh, this is, you've got to take it all. Jesus Christ was the Lamb of God because he became our sacrifice. And that's the only lesson God wants us to get out of that. Uh, we are, uh, godly people are figured as being trees planted in the court of God. No? No. <laughs> that, it, he, he intends it to make it clear that once he places us, we're there. Tree planted by the river. Put in a place where we can be extremely fruitful for him. Not, you know, your leaves fall off, you know. Watch your fingers and toes, because they're going to... No, that's not it. James and John, the sons of thunder. I mean, there one night, there was a big storm. Crash, boom. Oh, we've got a baby here. <laughs> what shall we name him? No. We don't take the bride as something literal. Understand, well, it's a picture of a spiritual relationship with no barriers. Now, not every human marriage is perfect. But we understand that there are some things that can be. No barriers. A willingness to come to agreement on things. And I'll guarantee you, if you want to have a part in the bride, you need to learn to agree with the Lord Jesus Christ. A full sharing, joint heirs with Christ. Reigning with him. 
It's a place of closeness and fellowship. You know, there's no, there's no room for a third person in a marriage. You know, it's two people, a man and a woman. There is a relationship with Christ that's available, but there needs to be a singleness to that relationship, a singleness of purpose. Uh, there are other things that a good marriage can display that we can have in our relationship with Christ. Another thing I'd like to say is that the bride is not some fanciful or exclusive idea invented by this person or that person. It's not something known only to our little group of churches. We are the people and the truth will die with us. Yeah? Some people have had that idea. Uh, I mentioned in my first lesson in this series that I would probably read a, a, a passage from a book written by Joseph Seiss, first published back in 1900. Um, I'm not going to take the time to do that. Instead, I, I printed out a longer portion that I wouldn't have read, and, and there's some papers right over there, and if you want to read it, you can grab one. If you'd rather have me send it to you as a PDF, I can do that. But uh, anyway, Brother Seiss was a Bible scholar, a Lutheran pastor. I can't endorse him for everything he believed, but he saw by examining the Bible that those who will be that company called the bride, the lamb's wife, are not the entire body of believers, but a people who will have committed fully to the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know enough about people and you know enough Christians to know that not all people have made a complete commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a narrowing down the further you go. Take truth by truth by truth and you see a narrowing down. Uh, the test of truth is the, the Bible. It, it's not by what's, you know, what did Brother Copley have to say about that? On a certain level... Who cares? What does the Lord have to say about that? That's what matters to me. And that's what matters to you, I trust. A mere human being can't give authority to a Bible teaching, nor by their words or their actions can you look at them and say, well, they believe that, so it must be wrong because they're wrong. No, the Bible is what gives us the authority. And uh, so if there is something that God offers to you, and you want to please God, take what he offers. So I've heard people say, you know, I just don't want to be selfish. I'll, you know, I'll be glad just to get into heaven. You know, that'll be plenty for me. Brother Richards was a, a, a deep, deeply committed man of God. But he was also a very impractical man in natural things. And he couldn't, there were a lot of things he couldn't do. And so he, I don't remember whether it was a stool or a little table that he made for his daughter Betty when she was quite small. And he, he did a really botched job of it from what I was told. And it wobbled and teetered and just wasn't. And she looked at it and said, blah. <laughs> and I, I know Brother Richards well enough to know that his feelings were probably hurt. <laughs> you know, you want to do nice things for people. And if they just say, no, I don't. Do you want, don't be that self-centered Christian. Oh, I'll just be satisfied to get into heaven. What will satisfy the heart of God? He has a plan for you. He has a desire for you. But, you know, we don't want the worst for our kids. We want the best. Let him give you his best. A couple of key passages. Well, we'll probably just look at one, maybe not even complete it this morning. But uh, regarding this Bible teaching, 2 Corinthians 11, verses 1. And, well, there's Brother Seiss, by the way. I didn't put him on screen. I love those side whiskers, don't you? No. Okay. 
2 Corinthians 11, verses 1 and 2. Oh, that you would bear with me in a little folly. And indeed, you do bear with me. I think it's uh, better translated, do bear with me. For I am jealous for you. And the, the word really should be more zeal. I am zealous for you with a godly zeal. For I have betrothed you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Um, let's start off by considering the popular views of uh, the bride, the lamb's wife. And I, I, I mentioned before that I do online research sometimes. Generally, it's just to see how people are handling the scriptures. And based on mistaken uh, beliefs of most Christians, from what I can see, they would count what Paul had to say here as being folly. Because they, they believe that uh, the bride is Israel. And the church has nothing to do with it. Or they believe the entire church is the bride. And so if you're saved, you're a part of the church, which means you're a part of the bride. And I won't go into the illogic of that, but it's not what the Bible teaches. If the bride were the nation of Israel, this whole passage would make no sense. It would be irrelevant. It has nothing to do with us anyway. Why even talk about it? If the whole church were the bride, then this passage and Paul's concern would be completely misguided. He said in verse 3, uh, But I fear, lest somehow, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity. Now, literally, that word is singleness, from the simplicity, or the singleness that's in Christ. You know, when you're young, you may have, uh, you know... Uh, an affection or you know you like several different people but when it comes time for marriage there needs to be a singleness of heart a singleness of purpose a singleness of desire and Paul was concerned now what reason would there be for Paul to fear or have zeal or concern if every saved person every person who's a part of the church the body of Christ is going to be in the bride whether or not they're fully committed to knowing more of Christ. So you see, some people, like the Corinthians, would have to count that folly if they're going to hang on to their ideas. And some people seem to think that this doctrine is for the very elite. We who are the spiritual, we know these things because we are the upper crust, the top tier. That's very much contrary to what I see in the Bible. We are not the sole keepers of the truth. I could go on and name other groups that have known these truths, but uh, when Paul assessed the spiritual condition of the earthly walk of the Corinthians, he said, you're carnal. You are far more concerned with the things of the world and the things of the flesh than you are with the things of God and things that are spiritual. You're babies! You have grown little or none since the moment you accepted the Lord Jesus Christ. And the reason is you don't care about growing. And yet Paul preached this truth to them. He made it known to them. He taught them this important area. This is a part of the basic message Paul preached, not something meant to be reserved exclusively for those who are deeply spiritual. It is set forth, you need to know this. This is something available to you. you. You can move into this. Christ is able to do this in you and for you. And uh, this teaching of the bride, if things were as they should be, would be presented in every church where the Bible is preached at all.
it was presented to the carnal and to the babes spiritually. Now, I know little children can't understand this, but spiritual children need to know that this is available. And so whatever you do or do not know, and at whatever stage you are in your Christian walk today, and to whatever spiritual growth you have or have not attained, I present it to you because it's for you. And Christ is able to accomplish this in you and on your behalf. May God bless his word.